Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 14. I'll be reading verses 1 through 13 of Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder, The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead, or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So far, the reading from God's word. When I was growing up, so again, a very, very long time ago, um, there were certain things that were just expected of those who called themselves Christians. We were taught these things from our earliest childhood, and we knew that this came with that profession of faith that we had made. We claimed to believe in and to follow Jesus Christ. Therefore, there are certain things that we must do, and some of you who may even be just a teeny bit older than me, might remember a song, I Will Make You Fishers of Men. Anybody remember that one? Yeah? Yeah, We used to sing it a lot. It used to be kind of a favorite. I know uh, there were motions, actions, that went along with it. And when we were kids, we loved those. And this was a good one because depending on the nature of the Sunday school or the vacation Bible school, you could get a wide range of, of different kinds of fishermen, you'd had some tender young ladies who, you know, were just 
you know, one of those ice fishing poles. And then you got the guys at the other end who have a trawler that's going along, cutting through the North Sea, pulling in tuna. And I remember the words of that song, I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men, fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men if you follow me, and, and so on. Well, the song had a second verse, too, maybe more. I just remember the first two. The second verse, I remember, went, read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow in some of your cases, not so much me. But the understanding was these were things we needed to do. We needed to read our Bible so that we would know who God is and what God expected of us. We needed to pray, committing ourselves to the word of the Lord, demonstrating in the relationship that we had with him the desire to follow him, and we needed to be fishers of men. We needed to share the gospel with the people around us. I, I remember hearing different takes on this as I was growing up, from some that were quite horrible to some that were just saying, oh, just try to share the gospel with one person every day. Just, just try. Now, there's nothing wrong with that song, Fishers of Men, except I grew up in Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes, at least according to our license plates. So our understanding, my understanding as a child, of being a fisher of men was pretty culturally conditioned because I lived about a half a block from a lake and there were docks on that lake and we all as children had our little Zebco rod and reels and we would go down to the dock and we would fish for fish. So we understood those motions. You know, you cast your line into the water and the sinker it's probably made of lead. It's probably horrible, all the damage we did to the environment in those days. Carried the hook, and there was a bobber, and you'd sit there then, and you'd watch that bobber, and you know, every now and then it'd go underwater, and you knew there's, there's somebody teasing the other end of that line, and you give it a pull and try to set that hook, and then reel that fish in. That's how we understood fishing. Takes time, takes patience, and you gotta reel them in. We had no concept of fishing in the way that the disciples were fishing on that day when Jesus came and called them and said, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Our kind of fishing, when I was a child, was very one on one. There was you and the fish that hopefully was on the other end of that string. It was very transactional. I'm going to offer you a treat, Mr. Fish, and if you take it, then perhaps you will be a treat for my family when I take you home with me this afternoon. A good fisherman, though, was not someone who spent a lot of time with his line in the water. A good fisherman was someone who reeled them in, someone who caught a lot a fish. So bait was everything. And back in those days, we used great big old mic crawlers and we used minnows, we used live bait, and the fish didn't even have a chance. So to scramble my metaphorical omelet a little bit here, we knew that you catch more flies with honeys, so when you threw that line into the water, you wanted some pretty sweet bait on the other end. 
And we carried that idea over into this idea of being fishers of men. And that's why at the back of every church I ever went to as a child, there was this rack of gospel tracks. You still see them once in a while, not quite as much as you used to. They're still around. These little brightly colored pamphlets. Sometimes it was just a piece of paper folded in half. And they were designed on the cover to draw your attention. I remember one called What to Do to Go to Hell. It, it had this graphic cover with flames and uh, the text just sort of like, oh, this is scary. What do you do to go to hell? And you open it up and it was blank on the inside, I guess. You don't really have to do anything, but you got to admit it's a catchy title. My favorites were the tracks that were produced by a guy named Jack Chick. He was a cartoonist and an evangelist after World War II, and he, he drew these little tracks that were essentially like mini-comic books. And since I grew up quite deprived, my parents wouldn't let me read real comic books. That was kind of the thing. You'd pick those tracks out of the rack at the back, and you'd read them possibly during the sermon. I'm not confessing to anything here. Um, you would read those tracks and then maybe take them home and share them at school with your friends, things like that. There were others, of course, that came along later. There was one that looked like sort of the end of a $5 bill. Um, and you were supposed to take it to a restaurant and slide it under your plate and it would, you know, look to the server like you were leaving them a really nice tip. And when they pulled it out from under the plate, the rest of it just said, take a tip. And I always thought, that is probably not the best way to share the gospel with that waiter or waitress that just served you. And of course, later than that still, we had the four spiritual laws and the bridge to life. And I think all of those universally were well motivated. I know people who have told me that their first introduction to the gospel, humanly speaking, came through one of these gospel tracts that was just left laying about by some well-meaning fisher of men. So I'm not saying it was all bad, but I am saying the gospel is not and never was intended to be bait. The gospel is not a lure to bring people to church or even to bring people into a relationship with God. The gospel is not a transaction. You cannot learn how to be a better evangelist by studying the art of the deal. See, the problem with that tract idea is that it's essentially reductionist. But as pastor and author John Piper said, and we have noted several times recently, God is the gospel. The living God. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Or if you prefer, the Belgic Confession, the living God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. This is who we confess God to be, and how are we to reduce he who is eternal, incomprehensible, infinite, unchangeable, and almighty to the single word, just God 
like a generic word at the beginning of a statement like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, thereby making the gospel really all about us instead of all about God. No, this reductionist tendency, keep it simple, keep it sweet, keep it focused on the benefits that we receive rather than on the glory of the living God in reducing the gospel in that way, we risk distorting the gospel. We risk obscuring the gospel and ultimately losing the gospel or even trying to exchange it for another gospel. Not that there is another one because God is the gospel and there is no other God. But there are some who trouble you, Paul wrote in Galatians 1, and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But the gospel, as we have seen in our study of Luke and Acts and now the Revelation, the Evangelion, is the good proclamation. You might remember that text we usually touch on at Christmas time, good tidings of great joy. That's the same basic word. So the gospel is not bait, it's not a lure, it's not something that we throw out there in the hopes that someone will bite and we can reel them into the church. The gospel is the message that we proclaim. It is not the deal that we offer. It is the dragnet that God is pulling through the world to gather his elect into his kingdom. And in this part of the book of Revelation, as John stands on the sand of the sea, that's where we found him, at the end of chapter 12, he observes not only the rise of these beasts in chapter 13 from the land and from the sea, he also looks up and he sees on Mount Zion that mountain characterized in Hebrews chapter 12 as the city of the living God. <clears throat> the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable company of angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All of this associated with Mount Zion. And John looks to Mount Zion and he sees Jesus there. And he also sees another angel that's flying directly overhead. So try to sort of build this image. It's a vision that John was having. And he stood on the sand of the sea between the sea and the land. And he saw a beast come up out of the sea. And he saw another beast come up out of the land. And he saw Mount Zion. And on Mount Zion is Jesus, the Christ, and he is surrounded by his people. And above it all, there's another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people, and listen to the content of this eternal gospel, this gospel for the ages that is proclaimed to every nation and tribe and language and people. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is, no, oops. Listen to what it says. He said, this angel, with a loud voice, fear God 
and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. See, the eternal gospel, the gospel, the eternal gospel begins and ends with God. Fear God and give him glory. Worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. And it makes perfect sense because God is the gospel. God is the substance. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. We've bumped into that before in this book of Revelation. He is the alpha and the omega of this good proclamation that we proclaim goodly. It's a good proclamation and we proclaim it goodly, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15. The euangelion that I euangelioned to you. He is the content of the gospel that Paul gospeled, and we've seen it in other places too. We've seen it in Acts 17, in our study of the book of Acts, where Paul is at Athens, and he began his presentation of the gospel there by saying, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples by, made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Or in the words of the angel in Revelation 14, worship him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. To borrow a phrase from a lesser light, it's not about you. Never was, never will be. Because God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That is, fear God and give him glory. Turn from your own way. Abandon that focus that we have on ourselves and our happiness. He calls us to fix our eyes on him. Fix your eyes on God and give him glory. And why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now while this applies generally to all people in all times, the word that Paul is speaking here in Acts chapter 17, the words that we see in the context of Revelation, and we will look deeper into this this evening, if the Lord is willing, have a much more specific message to a particular people in a certain time and place as those people faced off against the judge of all the earth. 
We'll look into that deeper, I hope. But remember, for now, this book is above all else the revelation of Jesus Christ. I keep coming back to that. I will keep coming back to it. That is the point. Not scary stuff at the end of the world. The revelation of Jesus Christ. So we are looking here for pictures. We are looking for portraits of Jesus, the Savior, who is Christ and Lord And at the beginning of this chapter, we saw him standing on Mount Zion, standing in the church, surrounded by his people. But after the first angel proclaims this everlasting gospel to those who dwell on the land, another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. We'll be looking at the second and third angels more closely this evening. A third angel follows, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. One commentator has said of this, either it's literal, in which case it's horrible, or it's figurative, in which case it's worse. Because the figures always point to something worse than what they sound like in themselves. Either way, at the particular time and place, the people who are referenced here are those people who in the first century were inclined to put Caesar over Christ. Those people who were willing to say, Caesar is Lord. Even if they didn't mean it in their heart, they were willing to say it because they thought it would curry favor with the powerful. The high priests of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the rulers of Old Covenant Israel, they didn't really think that Caesar was the divine Caesar or that he was in any sense Lord, but they did understand that it was expedient to bow to the will of the Roman Empire insofar as it would keep Rome from utterly destroying them. The mark of the beast, as we saw last week, the number of his name is 666, which was kind of a first century anagram, a little different than that, but it was a means for John to point his finger at the emperor himself, Nero, Caesar, without having his head lopped off or finding himself crucified upside down, as did Paul and Peter in that same time frame and at the hands of that beastly ruler of Rome. So we don't have to fear this because it's an historical reference. It was spoken 2,000 years ago to people for whom it was an urgent and contemporary concern. We don't have to fear the mark of the beast. It happened a long time ago. We also do not need to fear because we who have by grace been brought to faith in Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts We have been sealed on the forehead 
with the name of Jesus Christ and the name of God the Father. The song says, my name is graven on his hand, my name is written on his heart. Far more importantly, and perhaps biblically, his name is graven on your head. And it was written in the book of life of the Lamb from before the foundation of the world. If you have come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, then truly you belong to God, body and soul, in life and in death. You belonged to him before he made the world. You belong to him now, and he will hold you fast through all eternity in his love and mercy and grace. So here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. We are called to persevere. We are called to endure. We are assured, as were the saints to whom this book was addressed, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Never was written there from before the foundation of the world, and it will stay there. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God did not abandon his people in that day, and he will not abandon us. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness and he will surely do what he has promised. The very next revelation, the very next picture of Jesus Christ is found in, the, in chapter 14, verses 14 to 16. At the beginning, we see him standing on Mount Zion, surrounded by the saints, surrounded by his people. But then in verse 14, we find him seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the land is fully ripe. And if the Lord is willing, we'll consider this together some this evening and again next Lord's Day. But for now, the text goes on to tell us that when the angel said this, he who sat on the cloud, this one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head, swung his sickle across the land, and the land was reaped. So God keeps his promises. He always has. He always will. He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, and he has verified this by raising Christ Jesus from the dead. So we don't need to be afraid of those who can merely destroy the body. Blessed are the dead. John is instructed to write in Revelation 14, who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Do not fear, Jesus said, the one who can only destroy the body. Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water,
This is the gospel for the ages. This is the eternal gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we pray. Father, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Give us ears to hear this gospel. And Father, by your grace and mercy, through the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, enable us to turn to you in faith, repenting of our sin and our selfishness. And Father, seeking your face seeking to know you through faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be sealed with your mark on our forehead. And that, Father, having been sealed, we would have the assurance that our names have been written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, that they have been written there from before the foundation of the world, and they will never be erased. Lord, give us assurance and confidence in the faith that you have given us in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray in his name. Amen.